Matthew chapter 5 is where we are, and uh, that is where I stopped last Sunday. I went up to verse 5. Blessed are the meek. They are blessed because they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the gentle. The gentle are blessed because God shall give them all the blessings that pertain to, to heaven, all the spiritual blessings that can come from him. Now, moving on from there, in verse 6, we read that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We looked at, last Sunday we saw, if you want to be happy, what does it mean as far as the kingdom of God is concerned? If you want to be cheerful or blessed, how does that look like? And we saw the happiness and the blessedness and the cheerfulness that the world offers is at best short-lived, lasting only for a brief period of time, and then it develops wings and it flies away. But Jesus giving us a glimpse of the kingdom tells us there is a way in which you can attain an eternal blessedness and everlasting happiness, a joy that is with you as long as you are on this earth and even that will be with you when one day you are in heaven. That blessing is seen by those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6 tells us, whenever you think of the word hunger and maybe even thirst, the word strong desire should come to mind. There are a few things in life that produce the kind of yearning that thirst and being hungry produce. You know, you can hardly go for long without food or water. You shall waste away. You need food and water every day. And when you eat after being hungry or drink after being thirsty, you are filled, you are satisfied, your thirst is quenched, you are satisfied, you are fulfilled. In a much greater way, Jesus tells us that those who have an inclination for righteousness will be filled. Those who desire God's righteousness and not their own shall be satisfied. You know, normally people want to attain their own righteousness. People want to get their own righteousness. I remember watching a movie with my children some time back, and there was this song that was sung that went something like, I did it my way. And the, whoever has written that song and whoever has sung the song, but it goes by those words, I, I did it my way. And then he goes in history and then past and even thinks of the future and thinks how his way is the one which has brought him to where he was and his way is the one which will take him where he wants to go. And you can find a lot of doing things my way in this world. That is human nature. We want to be autonomous. If at all we could dethrone God and be God, we would, but we can't, thankfully. People want to attain their own righteousness. Jesus says that will not work, for that is not God's way. It is my way, and my way and God's way, without the work of the Holy Spirit, are often and always diametrically opposed. They are opposite to each other. They clash. They are like oil and water. Listen to the way Luke phrases this um, when he's recounting the sermon of Jesus in Luke chapter 6 and verse 25. He says, Woe unto you that are full, for you shall hunger. Woe unto you that are full, for you shall hunger. But those who desire the righteousness that God gives, 
those who strongly desire it, those who want to see justice in a world that is unjust, those who aspire to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ, those hungry for God, such types of people shall be filled. It's the promise that God gives. So then we have a choice whether to be hungry or whether to be full, whether to be thirsty or whether to be empty. If we are like that in terms of righteousness before Christ, then we shall be filled. Those are not the only people who are blessed. Blessed are people who are merciful as well. And the reason they are blessed is because they shall obtain mercy. What does it mean to be merciful? To be merciful means to be moved by the sufferings, the difficulties, the afflictions, and the troubles of others. In fact, it is to be so moved by these difficulties of others that you are ready to do something to alleviate it. You want to do something to help people come out of that difficult situation, whether it be emotional, whether it be physical, whether it be even spiritual. You want to do something to alleviate it, even if it is not within your power. Mercy is God's kindness. God's kindness when we deserve punishment. God is merciful. It follows then that all God's children, those born again through Christ, should be merciful. And Jesus promises that anyone who has that kind of a heart, they shall themselves obtain mercy. So one way to be blessed, one way to be happy, is to be merciful to other people, is to show kindness to others, even those that annoy you, even those people that trouble you. There are those people who don't make it easy to love. There are those people who seem to be unlovable and who are not worthy of mercy. Even those ones, for you, the Christian, was also under the wrath of God someday, weren't you? And under the anger of God as a result of your sin. But God did not give you what you deserved. God did not give me what I deserve. But I must also say that the opposite is also true. If one is not merciful, they should expect to be judged not to obtain mercy. And of course, God being merciful does not give or treat us like we deserve, yet one must not always think that that will be the status quo. Our God will always show me mercy so I can do what I want. Not really. Blessed are the merciful. God's kingdom is filled with people that are merciful. How have you been merciful this past week to, to your husband, to your wife, to your children? Uh, to people in the market, to people who have bad service, to people who wanted even to deprive you of your hard-earned income. And here you are called to be merciful to them, even in the words that you use and in the attitude that you approach them and in the way in which you confront them. Blessed are the pure, we are told in verse 8. Why are these people blessed who are pure? They are blessed because they shall see God. Everyone of us wants to see God someday. He wants to be where God is. Now, the heart has been described in many ways. Perhaps the most renowned verse when we are talking about the heart is Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 18. Keep your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the issues of life. 
And perhaps that verse is very famous because many people have been heartbroken in one way or the other by someone. And therefore, when you read that verse, you feel, it's because I didn't guard my heart. It's because I didn't watch my heart. The heart is the seat of emotions. It's the seat of the mind. It's the seat of the will. Of course, we are not talking about the organ, the heart. We're talking about the spiritual being. It is from the heart that intentions and principles and motives and thoughts and ideas emanate from. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The problem is not here. The problem is inside there. Now, Jesus says that these people who want to see God, these people must be pure in heart. And this is a very high standard. It's a very high standard, as is all that Jesus says in this sermon. And if you wonder how high this standard is, by the time chapter 5 ends, Jesus will say, you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That is God's mark. That is God's expectation. That is God's requirement. That is God's standard, perfection. But he also knows that while we are on this earth, that is not possible. Yet it is the mark. A goal is usually important in life, isn't it? For people often measure themselves by goals. People often look back and wonder, what have I achieved? Have I been able to attain my objectives, my aims, my goals? If you are a fan of football or many other sports activities, you know that what matters in a football game is whether a goal has been scored. What matters in terms of winning? It's whether a goal has been scored. And even at the end of a tournament, if the teams are tied in terms of the points, they look at the goal difference. The goal difference. Goals are important. But God is merciful, and what he looks for is not perfection, really, at least not at this stage of our sanctification, of our life with Christ. He looks at progression. Progression into purity of heart. Perfection, of course, being the mark. And the way to have a pure heart is by the meditative study and application of the scriptures. You wonder where sin is. We can't see sin with our eyes. We can see its effects, but we can't see it. But sin is in you, and sin is in me. Sometimes people try and blame all manner of external forces because of their sin and take all manner of external precautions, and part of that is good, but the Bible portrays sin as abiding inside of me. It's in me. And by hiding God's word in my heart, by obeying what God asks, by loving God with all my mind, with all my soul, with all my strength, by daily dying to sin and living to righteousness, by God's grace and the Spirit of God, your heart is made pure. It's a progress. So that if you look back two years ago, you can be able to say, I was less pure of heart than I am today. I was less forgiving. I was less patient than I am today. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. They shall be welcome in his presence as his loved children. Blessed are the peacemakers, verse 9. The peacemakers, for they shall be called 
the children of God. Romans chapter 14 verse 17 tells us a summary of what the kingdom of God is full of. The kingdom of God is this. It is righteousness, it is peace, and it is joy in the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, there can be no righteousness, no attaining of righteousness, no joy, no peace. But that's what the kingdom of God is. Before that, Paul, who wrote the letter to the Romans, had said in chapter 12 and verse 18, if it be possible, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. Make every effort to live at peace with all people. Make peace, not war. That is the heart of God. His nature and character is peaceful. If you pray for and promote peace, if you are a peacemaker, you are likely to be happy. You are blessed. You reflect who God is, and God will call you his own child. He will be your father, because our father is a father who is peaceful. Don't believe me? Think about Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. You have peace with God. What about Philippians chapter 4 and verse 7? It talks about the peace of God. Not only peace with God, but the peace of God that transcends all human understanding. Before Jesus ascended to heaven, he told his disciples about peace from God. Not only peace with God and the peace of God, but peace from God in John chapter 14 and verse 27. That peace I live with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. What beautiful parting words those are. Before that, he had told them, let not your heart be troubled in chapter 14 and verse 1. And the construction there in the original language, the construction in this verse in the original language is stop doing something that you're already doing. You're already in it. Stop. Do not be troubled. Let not your heart be afraid. Oh yeah, when you're driving and you, you, you go to work and fuel is 6,000 Uganda shillings and then you're driving back from work and it's 6,400 and you're like, eish, banange, did I just not pass here two hours ago? Let not your heart be troubled. When you go to the market and you find that you are buying uh, eight potatoes for 1,000 and now you are buying three potatoes for 1,000, let not your heart be troubled. If you are walking on the streets and then someone picks your phone, as they say, really snatches your phone from you, let not your heart be troubled. I see Pastor Martin, come on. But I'm talking about circumstances of ordinary life, am I not? I'm facing the same things with you. When I was new in Uganda in 2018, my smartphone, which was new at the time, was snatched. I'm also fueling my car the same way you're fueling your car. I earn a salary, likely, just like most of you earn a salary, I have nothing more, I have to manage it and survive with it for 30 days. And sometimes I have more months at the end of the money rather than the other way around. You know the feeling, do you not? Let not your heart be troubled. At those points, may the Holy Spirit of God remind you to calm down. 
You know, like one of those T-shirts which are written, stay calm, God is in control. I have to remind myself that brothers and sisters, in the ordinary circumstances of life and with the high cost of living, Jesus is our peace. We have peace with him, we have the peace of God, but we also have the peace from God. And blessed are you, dear friend, who always seeks to prevent fights, to prevent strife, to prevent war, but you advance peace as much as possible. You shall be called the children of God. Lastly, look at this, verse 10 and 11 and 12 of Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely. When men shall hate you and when they shall separate you from their company and shall reproach you and cast out your name as evil for my, uh, the son of man's sake. What does it mean to be persecuted? It means to be afflicted because of your faith in Christ. Because you believe in Jesus and have decided to be associated with his life, his words, and his actions. You are persecuted because of your faith. If people speak bad of you, if people gossip you and malign you and fight you and resist you and hate you, if people separate themselves from you, not because you have done any evil, but because you have stood for and with the name of Christ, look at verse 12, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. It's, 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 it's Luke who adds those words. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy and be exceeding glad for behold, great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, in like manner, they persecuted the prophets, their fathers who are before you. Listen, you are not the first. The disciples Jesus is preaching to will all be persecuted. If you have ever thought that, that following Jesus means to be famous, it means to be celebrated by everyone. If following Jesus means to be accepted, to be comfortable, that is not the case. Someone deceived you and you need to have a right approach to the Bible and to the Word of God. In fact, it's the opposite. Satan rules this sinful world and he's happy with you when you're on his side. God demands that we run away from this sinful world and into righteousness. That will not be easy. There's a struggle. There's a fight. That's why the Bible will always describe it in those words. There's a fight. There's a good fight of faith. There is a struggle with that. And as a result, people will not like you because you are doing what they don't want you to do. Christianity, brothers and sisters, has never been in the majority. Never. Christians have never been famous. The world has never at any time accepted the things of God. And church history teaches us when that happened, when they tried to make Christianity in the majority, then there was compromise. Then there were many things that were brought into the church. It has never happened. It's not happening. It will never happen. And it should not even happen. If it does, one of the two has compromised, either the sinful world or the righteous kingdom of God. No, just try to go to an unbeliever today or someone and tell them, do you want to know the way to be happy? And then you read for them Matthew chapter 5. And the person will think you are insane. Read the newspaper. I read the newspaper regularly. Listen to radio. 
if you don't believe me, watch the television. Check if there is any section of the news that is dedicated to God. Is there? Flip the newspaper, you start with the headlines. Then you have the local news which have made headlines. Then you have political news. Then you have opinions. Then there's a cartoon somewhere there. And opinions, then business. Then there may be an article from the government showing you what the government has done. Then you go into international news or business, whichever will come first. Then an article on agriculture, an article on how to improve your finance, on business, on the financial situation in the country. Then after that, you go to auctions, all manner of auctions. Then you find obituaries. And then lastly, you find sports. Not even one column that is dedicated to Christ, to Jesus. To God. Okay, now we are putting aside even one page out of 80 pages, 40 pages, 30 pages. They are going to talk about who God is. Now, sometimes people think that, ah, no, 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 we are accusing the world too much. No. Just common sense will show you that the sinful world will never want the things of God. And yet it is God who created us. It is Jesus who made all things. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. When people treat you as bad for Jesus' sake, for doing his good, be joyful, Jesus says. God approves you. In fact, you feel confident because I am a child of God. That's why I'm upholding the truth of the scripture and I am being opposed. It's not an easy thing, but it's a reality. And Jesus says you have even been put in the same category as the prophets of God. The prophets of God who revealed God's will to the people. And the reward that awaits you in heaven, no eye has seen and no mind can conceive. But if you are being persecuted because of doing wrong, that is on you. Don't drag God into it. God is not there with you. If you have been accused of stealing money or lying or deception or some other kind of immoral issue, that's on you. Don't say, I'm being persecuted. No, that's on you. Peter said, and we went through Peter, 1 Peter, in chapter 3 and verse 17, it is better if it is the will of God that you be persecuted for doing good rather than for doing evil. That you suffer for well-doing, not for evil-doing. Luke's version of Jesus' teaching is a warning. Luke says in Luke 6, 26, Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. Be very careful when all manner of people are praising you. Even in normal day-to-day circumstances, speaking the truth is, is not accepted. Oh, my wife takes all this time to dress up. She prepares her dress and all those manner of things and takes 15 to 20 minutes. And then she says, Martin, how do I look? Uh, uh, you know, why am I struggling to say, hmm, I think you should have held your hair like this and not like this. The word of God is described as a sword, piercing. It cuts to the heart. The armor of God is it's, it's defensive, but it's also offensive. The people of God are militant daily in spiritual warfare. 
The gospel is often rejected unless what is preached is aimed at pleasing men, unless what is said is to, is to tickle the ears of people, which is exactly what false teachers do. Woe to you who aims to please all people. You will end up pleasing no one. And so Jesus tells his disciples that this is the way to be blessed. This is the way to be cheerful. This is the way to be happy. You can see why it would contradict the teachers of his day. Or even it would contradict the teachers of our day. For we tend to think that happiness comes from material and physical things. Blessedness comes from physical and material things. After this, Jesus tells his disciples what effect they should have on the world. Verse 13 to verse 16. You are the salt of the earth and you are light to the world. From these verses, verse 13 to verse 16, I see that there is a simple outline. It goes something like this. There is a privilege, there is a reality, and then there is a result. P-R-R. Privilege, reality, result. Yeah, I couldn't get any R that matches with privilege, and I was not interested in changing my reality and result. Although result could be consequence, and anyway, it doesn't matter. Privilege, reality, result. You are the salt of the earth. Jesus' disciples are compared to salt. This is the privilege. In Jesus' day, salt had two purposes, two main purposes, for preservation and to give flavor. Preservation was the primary function of salt. Preservation is, of course, today, uh, maybe a tertiary function of salt. We don't even use it, do we? Refrigeration is the way that we use for preservation in our day. To give flavor was secondary in Jesus' day. It is, of course, primary in our day. It's the primary way which we know salt for, to give flavor. I watched a movie years back called Queen of Katwe. Most of you have likely watched it. And there are some children, and they're seeing words to the effect of give the flavor to the rice, give the flavor to the salt, not to the fish, it's the number one spice, or something like that. I thought when they sang that, you know, they are, they are correct, aren't they? If you don't have any other spice, I don't know, oregano, thyme, curry powder, uh, whatever you use to spice up your food, and you have salt, it gives flavor to your food. It doesn't matter what other spice you use. If you don't use salt, you are likely to be in trouble with the flavor of your food. Salt is collected as deposits from salty water. In the Dead Sea, salt deposits also had other minerals, apart from the minerals that are found in salt. For those who love chemistry and who enjoyed chemistry in school, that would be what? Sodium chloride. I didn't like chemistry. But if you like it, that's good. I mean, study it, work hard, and all that. But balancing those equations, man, was, was, was really troubling, to me at least. It was very complex for my small mind. The salt deposits had other minerals apart from sodium chloride, such as gypsum, which is a naturally occurring mineral that is used in, in um, preserving food that is in canned or canned vegetables and so on. 
It is also a, a major component of our toothpaste, isn't it? Gypsum. Now, if the salt was cleaned out by rainwater, what remained was useless for preservation. So they would dig what remains from those salt deposits and just throw it out on footpaths so that it could prevent the vegetation or plants from growing on footpaths. That's why the verse here says, if the salt loses its flavor, it is good for nothing to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot of men. That was the only purpose that was left for it. It's like having a fridge which is of no more use to you, and you take it out and throw it outside your house. Your children can play with it. Think about your 500,000, 1 million, 2 million, 5 million, 10 million Uganda shillings fridge. You're like, oh, this fridge is of no use, and you take and you throw it out. It's good for nothing. Let the children play with it. So that's how they would dig it out. But pure salt would be collected and would maintain freshness of food. It would safeguard it from harmful bacteria, and it would keep its quality. It was, it was invaluable. It was so invaluable that at some point in history, salt, salt was as good as cash. People would trade in salt, not trade insults. Trade in salt. In fact, our word salary is derived from that word salt. The church would now be giving me 100 kgs of salt every month. And so would your employer. And Jesus uses this picture to teach his disciples the lesson that just as salt preserves, Believers preserve the world from corruption and unpleasantness. Just as it is valuable to its environment, so are Christians. Just as salt flavors, so should God's people. However, there is a reality. It's the privilege. Here's a reality. If that salt becomes tasteless, how can it be made salty again? How can it be made salty again? It is not possible. We recently bought some salt with very small grains, I think 70% sodium, almost no iodine, made from some country in, in Europe and all that. This, this was the most horrible salt I have ever taken. Genuinely, it was bad. Victoria cooked one of the meals one day, and I was like, no, I helped her cook the meal. And so I thought it was me who had made that stew to be, to be terrible stew. It had no taste. Okay, it had a bad taste. It had a taste, but it was not a good taste. But then I told Vicky, no, I don't think my cooking also is that bad, unless she may want to disagree at this point, which she can't. So I told Vicky, do this. Take this salt and throw it away. And that's what she did. She just took it and threw it away. And we just used our common, ordinary salt from Lake Magadi or wherever that is gotten from. But when I say that salt was terrible, that salt was not good. And when I thought about you are the salt of the earth, I remembered that salt. There was no way to make it good. And so the result of such salt is threefold, the Bible tells us. Number one, it is good for nothing. It is useless. Have you ever heard someone tell another person, you're good for nothing? They are not good words, they are not kind words. It is good for nothing. And, and the eat here, the eat here, refers not to the preserved, but to the preserver. 
Someone may think, no, it refers to the fish. The fish is good for nothing. No, it's the salt. The problem is the salt. It's the believer. Uselessness is, is not a good condition. It is to be thrown out. It's the second result. It is to be trampled underfoot by people. A few years ago, the country I came from decided to revise its currency, the way it looks, not in terms of its value or denominations. And the reason was because with our new constitution promulgated in 2010, there was this provision to revise how the currency looks so that it has no images of people and all these things. But the central bank governor of Kenya also said there are people who are hiding about 7.5 billion Kenya shillings in their mattresses and fridges and all those other places you hide your money in your house. And we want all these currencies to be in circulation. And so they said for our highest denomination, the 1,000 Kenya shillings, from this date, it will be useless. And some people thought it was foolishness. These guys will never do it. Some people took it seriously. But then later on, someone came and gave me a 1,000 shilling currency. We have it in our house even now. It's just a piece of paper. Because the deadline passed, and the law came into effect. And you can't use that currency any longer. It is what? It is useless. It is good for nothing. It's just the same as I would take it and just throw it away, like taking the 50,000 Uganda shillings, tearing it into pieces, and throwing it into the fire. It's the result. In relation to believers, this means that when we lose good testimony, when our profession does not match with our life, when righteous living, our holy lifestyle and truth are not who we are, we shall end up as useless. When a man, when a woman loses their good name, what remains? What remains? I followed proceedings of that musician in the U.S., in North America, who was accused of many, many heinous crimes, and there was a case. And he became very famous, didn't he? Now he's just good for nothing. His name is entirely spoiled. And I thought, what a waste. And I prayed to God, help me that in my Christian life, I would always preserve my salt. I would always maintain my testimony. We are the salt of the earth. The world is corrupt in its words, in its manners, in its actions, in its teaching, in its values, and so on. But the Christian should not be. And that means, number one, the Christian will be rejected by the world when he maintains a high biblical standard. That means, number two, he must not be like the world in compromising his values, nor attempting to fit within the system of the world. He is in the world, but he is not of the world. He is here on a mission, not for amusement. Our life is very short. It's quickly coming to an end. We have a commission to fulfill, not an omission. There is also a sense in which salt affects the taste of something, but it cannot sin. It cannot be seen, sorry. So you put salt in your food, but you can no longer see those grains. But the effect is clearly felt. There is a sense in which Christians have an effect on the world that cannot be seen. And God has preserved this world from descending into chaos because of his church. One day it will descend into chaos. 
when the tribulation comes, when the church is removed, when we are no longer here. But as at today, by God's mercy, by God's grace, by God's goodness, we are here, preserving the world from decay, giving a certain flavor to the world, or at least we should be. The second one in verse 14 is that you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. And we shall see this next Sunday when we gather together again for worship. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this day. We thank you for these glimpses of your kingdom that are detailed for us in Matthew chapter 5, in Mark chapter 3, in Luke chapter 6. Your kingdom is righteousness. It is peace and it is joy in the Holy Spirit. Your kingdom is where we should aspire to be. We pray that the things that we have been looking at would be true of us as we are living in this world. We pray that we would maintain a high standard of your word, of the knowledge of who you are, Christ Jesus. We pray that we would be meek, we would be poor in spirit, that we would mourn over our sin, that we would hunger and thirst after righteousness. We pray that we would be peacemakers, that we would be merciful. We pray that we would see ourselves as blessed or cheerful whenever we are rejected, opposed, or fought for the sake of righteousness. Not because we have done evil, but because we have done that which is right. You left us here to have an effect on this world as Christians. May we have that effect. And this causes us to think how we talk, how we act, how we spend our time. It is not sufficient to just say there are 85% Christians. No, this is seen by our life and by our actions. If they do not portray that, then we are living in self-deception. But help us, we who are here listening to your word. Help us, we who are from One Life Church. Help us that progressively we will run toward the mark of perfection by the grace of God and by the help of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. And now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you. May he, he, may he be gracious unto you. May he provide for your needs. May goodness and mercy follow you all the days of this week. May the great shepherd of the sheep sustain you and keep you in his loving kindness until we meet again. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit 
be with us all now and forever.